The best decision I've ever made is to go vegan. You don't even have to get out of bed before you're doing something good for the environment and good for animals. And uh, it's a really liberating feeling to know that because I mean, you can't look in the eyes of an animal and deny that that animal doesn't want the same thing as us. It wants safety, it wants shelter, it wants to live without suffering, it wants to live without have to line up and walk into a slaughterhouse just like any other person would. And I think we're going to look back at some stage and be ashamed of what we've done as a species. You know, do you really want to be a person that pays somebody else to do something to animals you're not willing to do yourself? If we just take the time to reflect and have a think about what's on our plate and where did that come from and what did it go through to get there? You know, anyone with any conscience, we wouldn't want that happening to their own child, their own mother, their father, their brother, their sister. So why would you want it happening to something else, something that just doesn't have the ability to defend itself? That's Damien Mander, this week on The Ritual Podcast. The Ritual Podcast. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What's happening? Rich Roll here, your host on the podcast. Welcome or welcome back to the show, the show where I do my best to have conversations that matter with the most inspiring people, positive change makers that I can find, or (laughs) I guess I should say at least that I can convince to sit down with me, right? Uh, I jest. But look, I feel like the show is off to an incredible start in 2019. David Goggins, Dr. Zach Bush, Killian Jornet. And today's episode extends that trend with a truly remarkable human being, the vegan sniper himself, Damian Mander. Damian is a guy I respect deeply, a guy that I've wanted to get on the show ever since I watched his incredibly powerful and moving TED Talk. It's called Modern Warrior. Uh, Back in around 2013, I think, I urge all of you to watch this video. It just might change what and how you think about what it means to be a man. And of course, I'll put links to that in the show notes. Damien is a former Australian Royal Navy clearance diver and special operations military sniper. Basically, this guy's a massive badass who, after several years and many deployments in Iraq, experienced what I think can only be described as essentially an existential crisis around how he was living his life. And this catalyzed a complete lifestyle 180. He ends up liquidating all his personal assets that he acquired from 12 tours of duty and ultimately founds the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, (laughs) which kind of punctuates this reinvention of himself from modern warrior into African wildlife crusader, uh, leveraging his tactical warrior experience to advance the cause of animal welfare and environmental conservation. Uh, This guy is a very outspoken vegan alpha male soldier turned activist who is now on this amazing life mission to end poaching and trophy hunting. Damien's work has been featured in National Geographic, 60 Minutes, Animal Planet, Al Jazeera, Voice of America, Forbes, and the Sunday Times. And he is prominently featured in the upcoming James Cameron produced vegan athlete documentary, Game Changers. But please don't ask me when that documentary is coming out. I do not know. In any event, Damien is the real deal. And 
his transformation from being this meat-eating man's man mercenary into hardcore animal conservationist is absolutely riveting and you're not going to want to miss it. It's all coming up in a couple few, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce 
my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Okay, Damian Mander. So after three years on the front line of the Iraq war, Damian departs in 2008 and he essentially has no new direction in his life. He just starts traveling and this trip to Africa ends up leaving him face to face with the horrors of big game poaching. He has this encounter with a pregnant wild buffalo that was viciously trapped and mortally injured by poachers. And this experience, which he describes in our conversation, basically changes his life and and ultimately gives him a new one. Uh, It catalyzes this mission to use what he knows about modern warfare to put an end to the practice of poaching. But what's really interesting is that Damien begins to experience limitations in his militaristic approach and strategy. And this is what leads him more recently in 2017 to form and found Africa's first armed all-women anti-poaching unit tasked with protecting rhinos, elephants, and other wildlife. The unit is called the Akashinga, which translates into the brave ones. And these incredible women are really changing the way that animals are protected in this part of the world, arresting poachers without firing a single shot. And Damien is now convinced that women really are the answer and the future in this movement, that women really will be the ones to change conservation forever. And I think there's a lot to be learned here. Damien, again, absolute badass. You do not want to fuck with this guy, but his heart is massive. His story is incredible. And his work is changing not only the poaching and trophy hunting landscape, but how we think about masculinity in the modern age. So without further ado, here's Damien. Thank you so much for coming up. I've been uh, anticipating this conversation for a very long time. It's a pleasure to meet you, man. Your work is inspiring, and uh, it's an honor to talk to you today. Uh, Likewise. Uh, Thanks very much, Mike. Um, I think a good place to start is to kind of uh, establish the world of poaching and and what's currently going on right now. What is this? Like, explain this whole world of poaching. I mean, poaching is is illegally uh, taking something from nature that you're not supposed to be taking. That I mean, that comes in many different forms, whether it's removing plants or even rocks, uh, right up to killing elephant and, and rhinoceros, uh, either for the the tusks in the case of the elephant or, or the horn on the rhino, uh, the bush meat, the skins. Uh, you know, it, ultimately, it, it's a way to exploit nature and and in nature exploit animals and that's the part that appeals to me or in terms of trying to stop it mm-hmm. is the suffering that is happening to those animals and uh, you know I've got a certain unique skill set which is unfortunately required to protect nature and uh, that's where we're at mm-hmm. and in terms of of the landscape in Zimbabwe and the neighboring countries um, 
you know, break down the kind of economics that is fueling this whole industry? Well, you, I mean, poaching is, is often a function uh, of greed and of poverty, of greed coming from uh, places like the, 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 the Far East, mm-hmm. uh, where ivory and rhino horn are two highly desired um, prizes, basically. And, and what that results on the ground is, is people that are either trying to make a living or trying to get further and further in front uh, going out and taking taking what they can from nature and selling that. And I mean, it's another... It's another currency for organised crime, and uh, often the victims, uh, other than the animals, animals themselves in organised crime, are, are the people that are that are at the lowest levels who are there to carry out the function of, of killing these animals. Sure, I mean there's poachers that are simply just trying to survive, and then there's organised crime, right, yeah. where the profit margins are super high. I mean the 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 price for these tusks is insane. Well, I mean, in the, in the case of, of rhino horn, uh, a rhino horn can go for up to 35,000 US dollars a pound. And it's not uncommon for a rhino to have 20 or 30 pounds uh, on its snout. You know, these these animals, I mean, they should be locked in safes, but they're out there running around in the bush. And, um, you know, it takes a very concerted effort to try and give them mm-hmm. every chance of survival. Uh, and the, in the case of poachers, they've got to be right once. We've got to be right 100% of right. the time. of course. And the demand for these tusks is driven by places like China and Vietnam, right? China, the, Vietnam, Malaysia, belie- Hong Kong, The, the belief is that they hold mystical health properties. Well, with the case of ivory, ivory is used as, as carvings, trinkets, uh, creates status. Uh, you know, when, when these tusks in full, and particularly the bigger ones, are, are turned into these intricate pieces, they carry a lot of value. Right. And that's seen by certain cultures as a, as a form of investment and beauty and art. In the case of a rhino horn, rhino horn uh, traditionally has been used as part of uh, traditional Chinese and traditional uh, Vietnamese medicine, uh, and varying uh, curing um, qualities mm-hmm. uh, that, are, that, are, that are recognized in those cultures but recently what we've seen is it's become a status related good and that is it's similar to uh, having a rolex watch yeah. particularly in, in the way that business is done in uh, in these parts of the world being able to present someone with a piece of rhino horn or a trinket uh, made out of rhino horn it demonstrates wealth and 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 a certain level of capacity mm-hmm. so in 2009 when you embark upon you know this this journey that you've been on what was the state of of these animals, particularly rhinoceros and elephant, in terms of how many were being poached, how decimated were the populations becoming? Like, you know, how close to extinction are they? Like, what are the statistics on this? When I first got to uh, Zimbabwe in two thousand and nine, I arrived in Africa without having too much knowledge of of conservation or any of these populations. What was really going on? I arrived there, you know, simply to go and do some anti-poaching, um, and we can get into the reasons that I went there in the first mm-hmm. place uh, later in the, in the in the interview. But uh, the year I arrived into Zimbabwe in 2009, the, the previous year it had lost 15% of its black rhino population. Of black rhinos are, are listed as critically endangered. As far back as the, the turn of the um, 20th century, there was a million black rhino uh, that were that were you know roaming African right. plains and. Uh, 2009, we're down to 5,000 left. Wow! You know, so it gives you um, it gives you an idea of you know, a rhino is a, is an indicator species of of not only what we're doing to nature, but doing to our planet and ourselves. Mm-hmm. 
and seeing that downturn in in those numbers it, it i mean to me it was it was a war that presented itself that i chose to go out and, and right. try to fight uh well, let's work our way up to that. Um, let's go all the way back to the beginning. You grew up outside Melbourne. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, well, I was born in born in Melbourne, raised in Sydney. Um, yeah, dad ran pubs, so you know, we lived in pubs. I spent right. the first ten years of my, my life in a pub, and the last ten years getting kicked out of them. But uh, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, I read one story where, uh, I don't know how old you were, you must have been a teenager, where some guy came at you with a pool cue and you just stared him down and, and chewed your, your beer glass in front of him. Is that like apocryphal or is that did that happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's uh. happened. It's, <laughs> it's not so much the, comeback when you eat your you own spit spoon it out. glass. Don't yeah, swallow yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, spit, don't swallow uh-huh. it. Um, yeah, I was a bit of a young uh, hothead, I suppose I'll say. Um, you know, interesting as I sit here and look at your book on your on your desk here by Ryan Holiday, Ego is the Enemy. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly was my enemy for a long time. Yeah. Um, so you grew up as a young kid, a little bit entrepreneurial, uh, free diving for uh, for fishing lines and then selling them back to the fishermen. Yeah. So so back back this I moved back down in Melbourne when I was about ten years old with my parents, obviously, um, and. We lived uh, in, a, in a small fishing town called Mornington. It's not a it's not a small town anymore, but it was was quite small back then. And the fishermen would go fishing for calamari or squid of, of a night time, and yeah. they had these little lures that, you know, colourful little things itself. You know, fifteen twenty bucks in the in the in the shops. But I used to sell them for five. Uh, so I had, you know, I'd free dive free dive down and collect these lures and and come back up and sell them to the fishermen and and use the money. From that to start buying all my own scuba diving right. gear and, and put myself through training. And, of course, this was paying off. So what do you do? You go and get a bunch of shopping trolleys and throw them in the water and wrap them with rope. And that's you know, conducive to catching more and more right. fishing lures. So, <laughs> so, it's like a whole enterprise. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that was, you know, I was only like 14, 15 when, uh-huh. I'm, when I'm doing this and, and just falling in love with being in the water. And if I wasn't in water or, or, uh, or near it, uh, you know, I was... You know, I was, I was, I was lost. Right. And um, natural and progression for me was to, to try and join the Navy and become a diver. Right. So it was sort of perfect training to become a clearance diver. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, yeah, the the sea uh, was my office for many years. You know, mm-hmm. And I, I love being underwater and, and submersed and just having a task to complete under there. So what led you to that decision to, to join the military? You know, I mean, I... Uh, it just seemed like a honestly to, it would seem like a cool thing to do adventure mm-hmm. uh i joined the military for adventure yeah you don't yeah. seem like the kind of guy who could sit still for too long but what are you saying because cla- i'm like twisting and jumping around <laughs> no, here just yeah. in, based on everything yeah. that you've done i was little lifetime. johnny the little shit up the back that yeah. was always like throwing things and getting in trouble getting uh-huh. sent to the principal's office yeah that was that was i was that kid so for everyone out there that is listening that had an idiot like me in your class and stunted your education i'm very sorry mm. So uh, there's still a gap between joining the military and becoming a, a Royal Navy clearance diver, right? Like it's sort of the equivalent of Navy SEALs. So I, I actually joined up as an electronics technician because they wouldn't take divers straight off the street. So uh-huh. I joined up and uh, eventually was accepted to go onto the, the clearance, what they call the clearance diving acceptance test. That's our version of, of your buds, Hell yeah. Week. Uh-huh. And that's exactly what it was, sleep deprivation and being exposed to the... Uh, the the four great pillars of mi- misery to be hungry, co- uh, tired, cold, and wet. Yeah, uh, you'd know all about about that. And those um, 
you know those elements but uh yeah man i got through that and then went on to went on to training to become a clearance diver mm-hmm. and then um september 11 happened yeah was this did this coincide do you know paul de gelder yeah i know paul very were, well were you guys in it at the same time uh I think I was just getting out, or I'd, I'd gone over to the army at that stage to uh-huh. special operations when he was uh, when he was coming through. I'm sure. Right. But I know Paul well. He's a good mate of mine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, a, he's a friend too. I've got a funny story uh, about Tell Paul. It. If you want to hear yeah, it, so, yeah, so Paul was out do. filming a documentary. Now, for those of you that that maybe weren't listening, when Paul did his show here, you know, Paul is is a survivor of a shark attack, uh, and he lost his arm and his leg. But uh, so we, we we're filming this documentary, and. Um, Paul was there and we're doing unarmed combat training and Paul's bloody tough. So I go in there and I'm, it's me against two rangers. I get flattened in two seconds. They got me on the ground tapping out. Uh-huh. And now Paul goes in. Now, Paul wasn't willing to tap out. And so what happened is he's, he's essentially wrestling with these two rangers. But while he's doing it, his prosthetic arm and leg came off and had been thrown to the side. Uh-huh. And he was still wrestling with these rangers. And I say, I had him on the back foot. And just then, a game drive vehicle with all these tourists came around the corner and saw these two local rangers, <laughs> disguised, missing an arm and leg, wrestling on the ground. I had to run over and say, it's, it's all cool, it's all cool, right. you know. We're, yeah, we're, he's a tough guy. He's man. tough, mate. He's yeah. bloody tough. And he's a good guy. He's a good guy to, you know, just hang out and have a beer with. It's interesting that, that both of you guys have now, you know, taken a place in this, in this movement in different ways and have such a powerful voice like this, that life has brought you full circle to kind of, you know, coincide on, on different, but, you know, analogous missions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and cool. I, I, he's, he's got a great voice uh, for, for sharks and for the ocean mm-hmm. and, and, and animals in general. And yeah. I think that's a really important thing because our movement and the movement of, of, having a better understanding and appreciation and compassion right. for animals it's a story that we've got to hit from multiple angles mm-hmm. and that re- uh, requires multiple people and, yeah. and multiple stories and all different kinds of voices yeah you know yeah. all right so september 11th happens and and why was that significant for you personally i mean it changed the world for for a lot of people uh to a place that would never be the same again for various reasons but uh I mean, for, for me, it, it changed the course of, of my life. The Australian government formed what they termed the first and last resort for a terrorist attack on home soil, and that was the Tactical Assault Group. Mm-hmm. Um, a very small niche unit uh, made up of uh, various special operations uh, units and, and Navy clearance divers. I went across uh, into that unit um, as, a, as a diver, and I'd been there for a couple of days and was told I was going on to become a sniper or mm-hmm. to... Which takes you, away, takes you away from the water. It does, my fish out of water, yeah. uh, literally. Um, and so that was it, man. I went and trained and, and then passed, qualified, and, and went online as a, as a special operations sniper. Um, when was that? 2003, 2004, right. yeah. And then you get deployed? Um, so I left the, the Australian military and went to work in the private sector uh, and during the Iraq war. Oh, I see. So you never went to Iraq under official military capacity. Well, actually, well, I did. I, I went uh, with uh, private companies, but were employed right. by the U.S. military, uh-huh. um, the U.S. Marines, uh, a division called CPAT. There's a civilian police assistance training team. Mm-hmm. And then um, with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, Project Matrix, uh, rebuilding major infrastructure uh, across the country. Yeah. And a big part of that 
seen, from what I understand, it was that you were training the Iraqi police force and you know basically trying to get you know the, the Iraqi population on its own feet with respect to self-defense. Yeah, look, uh, that, I mean that was the role. Me personally, I mean I, I didn't join the military to serve my country. I did it for adventure, and I, I definitely wasn't in Iraq trying to mm-hmm. trying to make uh, the situation better. Uh, I went there for money. And that's uh, that's a God's honest truth. Um, it just so happened that the stuff we were doing there was aiming to be constructive. However, it wasn't. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think one of the biggest mistakes of the war, other than going there in the first place, was disbanding the Iraqi army and the Iraqi police overnight and then trying to replace it with uh, just a whole different, you know, whole different group of people in a short space of time. And we made so many monumental mistakes that have scarred that country. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, having to train all these people in a very short period of time to do a job they're ill-equipped to do, right? I would imagine that resulted in a lot of people perishing. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I was project manager for the Iraq Special Police Training Academy in northern Baghdad. And we had, um, you know, we were tasked by Congress to train and deploy battalion-sized groups and send them back out there on the front lines. Uh, groups that were drawn from a mixture of Sunni and Shiite uh, backgrounds and, and from anywhere in the country. And we formed the groups and we sent them out after six weeks of training and uh, they either got killed, uh, they joined the militia and fought back against us, or they right. deserted. And there's no greater way to demonstrate a failed theory than to send guys off to their, their yeah. death. But. Uh, but politically, they wanted to see the big numbers, right? Just that turn is, these people out because that looks good on a, on, you know, in a newspaper article. Exactly, man. Yeah. Um, and you know, it was the same time the insurgency was really standing up, and you know, a, a lot of that was led or contributed by the the people that had been put out of work, the ones that were trained, and the ones that had mm-hmm. access to all the weapons and all the explosives across the country. What do people not? really grasp or understand about what that experience was like being over there i think it affects um it affects people in different ways you know Mm -hmm. and uh i say the thing that probably and i struggle with the most you you don't get time to reflect until you're out of it often and you're trying to look back and piece things together and figure out you know what it was all about and what you were doing there in the first place and um yeah, the thing that affects me the most or affected me the most was just seeing what happened to the Iraqi people and their culture and their country and their families and their children. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I made a very strong effort to learn Arabic and learn the culture when I was there and spend time with families, eating with them, um, understanding them, yeah. communicating with them. And, uh, you know, when you can't sit down at a table and, and, and break bread with someone who hasn't been directly affected... You can't do that anywhere. Everyone's been directly affected, whether it's a kid that was blown up on the way to school, whether it's a mum that's missing an arm or a leg or a wife that can't see anymore. Yeah. So it's everyone's got a story, man, and every story's tragic. Wow. So you deploy, You did 12 different deployments yep. over how many years? Uh, three years. So, three years. I mean, so a deployment, how long was a deployment? Anything from two weeks to six months. Yeah, uh-huh. Six months were the longest, two weeks was the, the shortest, just depending on what the gig was or the mission. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, you kept going back. Money was good, though. I bought my first house yeah. um, before the age of 21. And, um, wow. By the time I left Iraq, I had six houses. So. Uh-huh. Is that a common thing with guys in your trade? There's, they start buying real estate with a disposable income? 
No, I wouldn't say it's common. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's it's. I mean, the, the great Australian dream is to own your own house, I suppose. But uh, you know, for me, I didn't want a house to live in. I just wanted residential property to invest in and you know make money. And that that's what, you know, that's what that was what drove me in my twenties: mm-hmm. uh, adventure and money, and trying to make as much of it as possible. Um, it was a status thing, to be yeah. honest. So after that twelfth deployment, was there something inside of you that said, like, I, I'm done. Like, I, I've got to find a, something else to do. I was starting to get complacent, you know. We're going out running up to four missions a day and just complacent, you know, and that wasn't fair on the people around me. Um, You know, I had enough money, had enough houses uh, that, you know, if I was smart with my money, I I wouldn't have to work again for the foreseeable future. Turns out I did after I spent it all on setting this thing up. But uh, (laughs) Yeah, we're going to get to that. But, uh, yeah, I spent nine years of military and, you know, I suppose I was just, burnt out man mm-hmm. i mean you're sitting there you're like a coiled spring for three years uh over there and um you know same shit day in day out get up draw your weapons roll on missions yeah and then come back in and fucking sit there and try and watch a television right. show and go to the grocery out. store yeah yeah i mean it has to be super weird and disorienting i had a uh, a woman in in here to do the podcast the other day who suffered you know terrible ptsd from from uh, her deployment, you know, to the point of, you know, coming close to suicide and having lost a bunch of people, you know, that she was close with. And it was interesting to hear, you know, her journey back towards trying to become whole again after that experience. I mean, do you qualify as somebody who experienced PTSD or do you just think you needed to find like a, you know, a healthy outlet? For all of that adventurous energy that you have, I suppose the danger with PTSD is is thinking you don't have it or saying it, it doesn't mm-hmm. affect you. I think there's no way you can you can go to a place like that and not be affected um, in some way. And, and also, you know, it doesn't affect you straight away for a lot of people. Right, it simmers below the surface and then rears up, uh, often with a combination of other factors in your life. But um, no, man, I mean, if a car door slams or and there's a loud, unexpected bang. I'm like, wow, yeah, still <laughs> on the roof, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, you know, I get a little bit of anxiety and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I suppose that's that's what you get when you roll around expecting to get blown up at any stage for yeah. for any extended period of time. You 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 carry that with you. But um, for me, I think you know, for, for a lot of for a lot of people that leave war, the hard part is leaving purpose. And when you go, and I hate to say war is purpose, but it's not necessarily the war, it's the units you're working with and the people that you're side by side with. And these are, in my case, they're brothers. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's very few other jobs where you spend all working week together and then you want to hang out all weekend yeah. and then go. It's just, it really well, that is. That camaraderie, a, that bond is man, like nothing else. It's it's really hard to find. And then when, you, when you're not there anymore and the, all the skills, I mean, you, I mean, special operations, it's, it's a special job, you know. And then when you're not special anymore, you're just fucking someone else, and that's right. that's a lot to deal with for some people. And uh, what are your buddies doing now? Fuck, I mean, there's a bunch of it that, that have killed themselves. Um, there's a bunch that gone on that been very successful in the military, uh, in the private sector. Great fathers, some, um, you know, some people that are really struggling. Hey, yeah. you know, um, yeah, I had a bunch of guys go off and, and follow the diving side of stuff, you know, deep sea uh, or. Um, saturation diving but um yeah for a lot of guys it's tough mm-hmm. and, and and women as well of course 
So you go to to South America first to basically like party. I mean, what was the idea? Yeah, man. I read a book called Marching Powder, and they said the best cocaine in the world was made inside San Pedro Prison uh-huh. in La Paz, Bolivia. So I thought <laughs> I'd go and check it out. Yeah, how'd that go? Yeah, it tasted like shit, but it smelled good. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. Look, um, yeah. Look, not a year I'm proud of, but I suppose we've all got to look back on certain parts of our life. But I think it's, I mean, I'm asking you not from a purient interest, but yeah. really because I think it's important. Like, I'm always super interested in, you know, how people take their pain and turn it around. And I think in order to really kind of understand that, like, I want to understand, like, what you endured and what you went yeah. through and, like, where it took you. Because at some point, there was a powerful catalyst that set you on a whole new trajectory. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, South Africa, uh, South America for me was about bottoming out, hitting rock mm-hmm. bottom, and I don't know if that was a self-destruct mechanism that I felt I had to had to hit to realize, you know, am I going to go all the way through the floor, or am I going to use that to bounce back off and come back up the other side? And uh, fortunately, um, you know, it was the latter, came yeah. back up the other side. But how long were you down there? Eleven months in South America. So uh-huh. yeah, man, just just partying the whole time. Right. You know? And it was it was my way of just tapping out and just i don't know you know you tell yourself some funny things when you when you think you've you've been working hard and you deserve a break or mm-hmm. you deserve uh things that may not be good for you yeah yeah your mind can play some really good tricks trust me yeah 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 i know yeah so did you are you sober then did you are you like totally off everything or was oh, it mate, just I still, no, I still have a beer and have yeah. a drink love a beer uh-huh. and a drink and all that but um you know, let's just say I consumed my, my share when I was over there right. of, of drugs and alcohol. It was, um, you know, it was a, it was a dark time, and uh, you know, but it, it played a role in, in shaping who I am and, and where I am today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being able to look back and reflect uh, on our vulnerabilities and use them as a, as a tool for change, I think, is what can make us truly human. Yeah. And nature nature gets to evolve over millions of years and we only have one lifetime to do it Mm -hmm. so we've got to fucking get it right and get it right quick yeah yeah well that issue of vulnerability i think is super important you know i mean you're a guy who i look at and say you're changing people's ideas of of masculinity in a positive way in the sense that you know we traditionally align for whatever reason dietary preferences with what it means to be a man and the willingness to be vulnerable is seen as a weakness and you know i've come to learn and experience directly and through many other people that i know that when you have it actually takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable 100 and that's what is the connective tissue between you and humanity and your community and i think it holds a lot of power to be transformative for other people that you know are struggling in their various ways yeah yeah um yeah you're right how you know it's easy to bottle things up and not talk about them and you know puff the shoulder and puff the mm-hmm. chest out and and you're trained to it. do that yeah i mean well it's expected yeah uh, there's a difference between tr- being trained to be like that or being expected to be like that and i think being expected to be like that is harder what i don't to explain the difference you know like i mean if you if, if you're trained to be some tough guy but then everyone thinks you're a tough guy i mean a lot of the guys we work with uh, in special operations. Now, special operations now isn't just a bunch of big 250-pound guys uh, covered in tattoos. You know, there's there's you know, all different shapes and sizes. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's the small, quiet guy in the back corner you've got to be scared of, not yeah. the big, loudmouth with the tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah. So, um, uh-huh. you know, and for me, I suppose the hard part was, is I'd, 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 you know, I was a hard footballer. Uh, 
and you know I was a, I was a tough scrapper as a kid and it almost like I felt as though I was always having to do something to prove who I was mm-hmm. and to prove the next thing and impress someone and that I suppose has been one of my biggest downfalls yeah where does that come from you think I don't know man just as a kid just trying to find your place in in the world in the, in out there and, and figure out who you are and, and where you're from and I suppose you know it, you can get on a slippery slope pretty quickly and uh, yeah I mean I did some cool stuff but uh, I, I wouldn't say I was happy with the person that I was mm-hmm. so how do you get from South America to Africa one way ticket Oh, did you go straight from there? What's that? Did you go straight from... Uh, no, I went home, had, a, had about 11 months' worth of dirty laundry to take back to mum and... and uh, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I went home and just um, put some weight back on and I uh, got down to 89 kilos. So what do you got? Uh, What's that in pounds? I don't um, know. I'm sure somewhere you know, it's probably like uh, 200 pounds or something. Right. Like You're like, what, like 240? 250. 250, yeah. Uh-huh. So... So, yeah, I just went back home, mate, spent some time with the family. I'd been away for the better part of three years, and, you know, I'm very close with the family and, and everything. So, yeah, went back there, regrouped, and off I went, man. I had a, had a one-way ticket. Why Africa? Um, look, I, I read a lot of Wilbur Smith as a kid. Honestly, it was another adventure, and I uh, heard about anti-poaching some years earlier. Actually, I just got a message uh, from a mate yesterday. He said, I remember you talking about that in 2003 mm. uh, in, a, in a bar. And I'd heard it years earlier as well. So oh, it that's just, interesting. It just, uh, it just sounded like a cool thing, you know. And it's, you but know, was, it the, was it just Africa? I mean, did you have an intention of seeking out this whole anti-poaching thing? Yeah, I mean, I was, go, I, was going over, I was going over for another adventure, another, right. another, another you know, chapter in Damien Manda's life I wasn't going to do mm-hmm. anything constructive I was looking for a, a call a, a fight not a cause right and um, yeah it was a, a another you know I would say you know was a, a misdirected use of my energy and skills at the time yeah mm-hmm. well looking back not so much your intention maybe yeah you know things have worked out things have worked out really well and I suppose uh I'm really happy with where we're going as an organisation. I'm happy with my own personal evolution and and just, I suppose, and I'm proud to say the courage that I feel I've had to stand up for those that can't speak for themselves Mm -hmm. and to to try and be a role model, particularly to younger men. And, uh, you know, we don't don't have to hurt things uh, to be cool. You don't have to put people down to be cool. You don't have to be... a sniper to be cool you don't have to eat meat to right to prove how macho you are you can just be you and, and you can be much more powerful and courageous and uh, and much more of a role model when you do what you believe in it's interesting that you're you, you know you said your evolution but that evolution, you know, is continuing to unfold. Like the changes that you've made just since you did that TED talk yeah. are, are pretty amazing, right? It's not, it's now extended to caring for all of these women and it's almost become a female empowerment movement as much as it is an animal protectionist conservation movement. Yeah, I- interesting you say that. Uh, you know, at the core, we're a conservation organization not necessarily a female empowerment organization we have chosen to employ women and put them out there on the front lines in what is 
the only nature reserve in the entire world that's completely managed and protected by women. We're doing this not because we felt a pressure to equal our numbers, not because of a Me Too movement. We're doing it because it makes business sense. And I think for a lot of people that's important to understand because it, it, it makes business sense. And the bottom line is what influences a lot of people. I come from the ultimate boys club, special operations. You can be the president of a country and be a woman, but you can't be special operations. And so for me to be in a position now where I am and and genuinely believe that women will change the face of conservation forever is a big turnaround. And ego was the thing that was holding us back the whole time. Mm-hmm. Well, let's work our way towards that. Um, you, you arrive in Africa and, and what, you just like immerse yourself in the anti-poaching community? I mean, how does that work? I tried to sell myself as you know this tool that could be used and deployed out there on the front lines. Uh-huh. And then you start... Like here comes another white guy who's yeah, gonna save us. Exactly, man. And uh, you know, got a lot of a lot of closed doors. Like people, and I get an email every day from someone that wants to come over there with their own sniper rifle or whatever it may be, and run around the bush and hunt poachers. And it's not like that. There's a far more complex situation going on on the ground. And this is not the wild west where you can just turn up with your own rifle and, and go out and start hunting people. You can join the army if you want to do that, but you can't come to Africa and do that. And uh, you know, the position I've carved. Uh, in the industry and in Africa has been out of granite. It's been tough, uh, a long, hard slog, and one in which I invested 100% of my life savings mm-hmm. uh, to set up this organisation and, and, and make a go of it. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until I'd, I'd, I'd spent a, the better part of six months travelling around the continent trying to get a feel of things that I realised, you know, maybe I'm, I'm going about things the wrong, the, the wrong way. And, right. And we... Um, now, we eventually got a start in, in Zimbabwe, and I just started working with an anti-poaching unit and uh, just seeing the difference that a bit of FaceTime with these guys made, mm-hmm. you know, seeing, you know, for them to, to learn that they were appreciated and, and you know, that someone wanted to train them and work with them. And, you know, this was only in one area. So, I mean, obviously there's great efforts going on across, across many other areas, but I was just seeing impact that I was able to make. And then you also see, you know, I just come from Iraq, come from from the military units I was in where, fuck, mate, if I wanted anything, I'd go to the storeroom and get it. Uh, if we needed budget increase, we get it. You know, we just asked for it. And I was part of a, a, a military unit that was spending $700 billion a year. Uh, it's the, the annual defense budget. And I was just an instrument of war. And, uh, you know, you're part of this huge funds, you know, spending mechanism, which is, you know, we're looking after fucking oil in the ground and dotted lines on a map and then you come over to africa and you see these people that are protecting the heart and lungs of the planet you start to think shit you know what was i doing and and not only that i was trying to have an adventure on the back of their hard work so it made me feel um it made me really reflect on who i was and, and what i was about and i was increasingly becoming the person that i didn't want to be mm. but there's this one experience that you have like a moment where everything seems like it from what i understand it seems like it changed things for you like coming upon an animal that had been basically the, you know murdered and the tusk removed and that was kind of a, a turning point for you i mean there was there was gradual things that were going on uh but there's catalyst moments uh, the first one being seeing a, a, a buffalo like a you know one of the biggest and most powerful animals uh in the bush there and one of the most dangerous and she had her back leg caught in a wire snare and the rangers can read the ground like you read the front page of the newspaper they they it's a language to them 
and uh, they were able to determine that she'd been struggling for three days and she'd ripped her pelvis in half uh, trying to escape. You know, they use these wire snares. They're like landmines. They stay there and designed to trap animals that walk through around the, he- the legs, the neck, the head, whatever it may be, uh, and in- indiscriminate. Yeah. And, you know, animal doesn't, you know, it's confusing when you're trapped in a bit of wire and you don't have hands to undo it or anyone to help you. And, uh, you know, we had to euthanize her. We had to put a gun to her head and pull the trigger. And she gave birth to a stillborn calf. And that's, um, you know, I may appear to be a tough guy, but something like that will break your heart, mate. Yeah. And the thought was, if there's a way to bring to bear this skill set that you have and, you know, kind of institutionalize it, it could provide a line of defense against essentially what is what you're combating, which is, you know, uh, a highly organized, well-funded operation to poach these animals. Yeah. And up until that point, the line of defense was not organized, not well-funded. Uh, people that lacked, you know, certainly lacked the skill set that you have to deal with this problem. Look, there's, there's a lot of good efforts that are taking place out there, but not enough of them. And uh, there's a huge imbalance in, in this world in terms of what we're willing to give towards protecting nature and, and animals. Uh, I think about 5% of all charitable giving that goes out is, is dedicated for animals, domestic and, uh, and wild. Is it only 5%? Wow. And, and, and the environment. Uh, religion gets about 30%, and uh, the rest is all humanitarian stuff. So there's a, you know, we want to look after ourselves. We've we, we got to look after nature to be able to do that most effectively. And look, I saw a problem. I had two things. I had a certain skill set, and I had money, so I decided to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. Uh, there was no long-term thinking about it. I mean, I was enrolled to go and be trained as a chef down at uh, Silwood in Cape Town at the time, mm. and uh, you know that was going to be my next next life choice. And then once you know I'd got submerged enough in in this with with the Rangers, that was it: sell up and and start up. So you sold all your properties yeah, to was, like self-fund this thing. Yeah, I didn't pay myself a salary for the first three years, and wow. uh, just used the rest of the money to to pump back in vehicles and aircraft and training centres for rangers, supporting various programs. And then uh, we got to a point where we had $2,000 left in the bank. I thought, shit, I need to figure out how to fundraise. So, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Get on a plane and come to L.A. Yeah, well... Start doing TED Talks. Yeah, yeah, that'll help. But um, this is... Now, this is many years ago. We you know, started the organization. It was sort of ragtag, small operation. Um, and who are you recruiting to, to be your feet on the ground? Were people in the community or some of your peers from special forces? Like what yeah, kind of dudes? A combination of the, of the two. And you know, we, were, we were working largely to empower indigenous forces, uh, and ones that were already in, in a role, not necessarily going out to train new new forces and um, yeah it's just I mean a lot of the skills that they need out there on, on the front lines are, are very similar to what we needed in the, in the military and we, we don't need SEAL Team 6 out there on the ground protecting these animals we just need people that we can trust uh, people that are willing to work hard that are uh, well motivated and well led and, and with the right basic equipment and I always say what we're doing the first 90% is, is just working with people and you know we can't replace people with algorithms in Africa, the most important asset and the value, most valuable asset is the people there. And if you work with them and just focus on the, the first 90% of your of your model is, is getting them well-motivated, well-led, well-equipped, then 
that'll generally solve most problems. The last 10%, you can start introducing the sexy stuff yeah. like the drones. And yeah, everyone wants to talk about the drones, but you're always bringing it back to the people. Yeah, well, you know, well, there's, I mean, there's there's been a number of trials done uh, with drones in, in Africa and, and in conservation. And I mean, the bottom line is conservation doesn't have the budgets that the military does. And so we sit there stuffing around with with bits of equipment that the military superseded decades ago uh, and trying to make that work when in actual fact there's a reason the military has, yeah. has uh, evolved and that's because they've evolved to things that work in, in, in tougher theatres. We, we don't have those budgets. Yeah. Are there certain areas where everybody knows these are the established front lines where, where the poachers tend to you know navigate towards like how do you know where the hot spots are where the poachers are going to be like how does all that work yeah definitely um you know one of one of the programs we ran was uh on the eastern side of kruger national parks uh border on the mozambique side of the border and that is essentially the piece of land that separates a third of the world's rhinoceros from most of the world's rhino poaching mm -hmm. syndicates and that is very much the front lines there and uh you know, we, we the border was essentially the, the, the front line of the war there. And because they wander off the protected land and then they're fair game for that? or Well, when they wander across the border into Mozambique, uh -huh. where South African forces could not cross the border and, yeah, and pursue them, I see. Uh, they knew that they could sneak at, up to the border, shoot, cross over, or cross over, shoot, and then get straight mm -hmm. back across to Mozambique. And we stopped that. We... Uh, we created a viable force on the Mozambique side of the border that was able to pursue uh, Mozambicans on Mozambican turf. What is the law? Like, are you legally allowed to shoot poachers, like shoot to kill if you catch them in the act? Or how does that work? I mean, it's, it's very much the same as, uh, as, as a Western uh, law enforcement models. Uh, where you can shoot to protect life as a last resort. Um, we teach our, our rangers to use the minimum amount of force required to get the job done. And, and what we're essentially trying to do is not only preserve wildlife, but also preserve human life. And, you know, I mean, you post something on Facebook and, you know, you get all the comments there. It's like, I'll just shoot them and stack them up and all that. And it's not about that, you know. Uh, you know, we, we, we have to work within the laws of the countries that we're in. And we actually want to want to see this thing go to go to trial and have a fair hearing. And, uh, you know, we, we can't be seen... We're not some sort of vigilante force yeah. out there. We're working with the government departments. We we have you know, respectable people that are on our boards of directors. Jane Goodall as our patron. You know, we we can't jeopardise that because we want to go out there running around and, and just hunting poachers. Mm -hmm. It's not like that on the ground. Yeah. So how, I mean, are you able to ward off violent altercations in most cases, or how often does it escalate? To with the men, uh, I would say, you know, and, and when I was when I was in the military, you know, men, you sort of, you, you, you're geared up to fight, and you're always in that sort of fighting mode. Uh, and counterinsurgency, you know, or counterinsurgency is, is counterinsurgency. You go out and you look for look for a fight. Women, women have proven to be very diff different uh, in what we've seen on the front lines. And the 76 arrests that the, the women of Akashinga have made in the past 14, 15 months have been made without a single shot being fired which is quite remarkable to see uh, because usually there would be confrontation when yeah. there's so, so much altercation. Now, the, the, the area they're protecting, and I don't want to get too far ahead here, but the area they're protecting is home to the second largest elephant population left on Earth. 8,000 elephants have been killed in that area in the last 16 years. So that's thousands of times teams of armed men have come into that area, thousands of times that 
they're not only willing to shoot elephants, but the people that protect them. And uh, for the women to be able to operate in such a dangerous environment and do so in such a passive way is, there's a lot to be learned from that. How are they doing that? Like, what's the secret there? Is it empathy? Is it that the poachers are reluctant to kill the women or escalate it to that level of violence? The women are very good at collecting information. Women form the, the informal communications networks of, of rural uh, communities. Um, about 3% of crimes that are solved around the world are solved by catching someone in the act. The other 97% that are solved are solved through intelligence-led intelligence operations, uh-huh. and that requires information to analyse, turn into intelligence, and we can go out and do those missions. And the way that the women communicate, not only communicate, but relate to the people in the communities they come from gives us so much information. We know what's yeah. going on uh, anywhere at any one time when we have to know it. And a lot of the arrests they do is based on the information they collect. And we go to the poacher's house at two or three o'clock in the morning, surround the place, and it's it's over very quickly. Um, the arrests that they've made in the bush, they're very well trained, uh, they're very fit, they're tough, they're well armed. Um, we don't like the fact that rangers have to be armed and they need these sort of skills, but that's the reality of it out there on the yeah, front yeah. lines. And, uh, that's interesting. And I don't, I don't know the exact dynamics. We're working with um, the Chinoy University of Technology to look at a, a number of different things on this project that we, we, we want to understand from a scientific standpoint because there's some really different things that are going on here. Right. Uh, I mean, another thing, for example, the, the old patrol reports of when the men worked in this area, they were charged by dangerous animals like elephant and buffalo quite regularly. Uh, the women haven't been charged once yet. And we look at that and we thought, well, what, what's going on there? We found a study where... Uh, voices from two different tribes were played to elephants in Kenya. Uh, one, of the, one of the tribes had historically hunted elephants, one had not. The elephants became very agitated uh, to the voice recording of the tribe that had hunted them and not agitated to the other voice recordings. These animals know what's going on, man. They're, they're smart. And we, we spoke to the professor, uh, Victor Mposhi, at, um, at the, the Cut University there. And he said, what do you think this is, Prof? And he said, well... It's probably as simple as this. What's been hunting animals for thousands of years? It's been men, not women. Mm-hmm. And so if we can scientifically prove that all female patrols are actually much safer from the biggest threat that rangers face out there, not necessarily poachers, but the animals they're trying to protect, you know, it's another dynamic to, to what we're doing. That's super fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that being, being met with that specific dialogue, dialect and having them be agitated, even if they, even if they weren't directly hadn't directly experienced that before it's almost like baked into the yeah. genetic code yeah yeah that's amazing yeah Super i need to get back to you on that animals. man and, and and let you know where we yeah get with i'd it. like but to it, i'd like to know it's, more it's about what they figure out fascinating <clears throat> and uh you know we, we're learning a lot just but you know i remember during the training uh and very early in the stages you know i'd never worked with women um all our units were all male and uh and i'm just watching them They'd been given a, a team building task, and I was getting super frustrated that they, you know there wasn't all the grunting and groaning that you would expect with doing what we were putting th- putting them through at uh-huh. the time. And, uh, and you know I was about to go and intervene and just say you know look if you don't want to be here then just you know you can pack your bags and leave. Okay, we only want people that are putting in a hundred percent effort all the time. And then I, I shut up a bit my, bit my bit my tongue and went shut up and sat down and just watched them. And they got the job done. And they got it done in time and they got done as well as it had to be done. Uh, they just, it was far less bullshit. And I realized there's just uh, different ways of doing things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we should just establish that um, you started this unit called Akashinga. 
which is this all-female ranger program. Mm -hmm. Um, What was it like? Within a year, right? Or a year ago or something? Uh, It's very recent. August 2017, we started. Uh Uh, And explain to me the, the impetus to forming this. I mean, we're reading more and more literature about uh, the empowerment of women and in industries that are that are transitioning to have more women inclusive in management positions, board positions, uh, field positions, and the flow on benefits that they're realising, uh, and being part of a, a largely male dominated industry, and particularly at ground level where men outnumber women by up to a hundred to one on the front lines, and the ratios you'll hear are, are different. Uh, there was a study done that said 19% of rangers are actually female, but those females are restricted uh, generally to, to looking after a gate or an office job or not frontline jobs. And so we thought if women aren't being given access to every every role at ground level, then they can't really rise into management positions and be expected to make life and death decisions in, in an operational environment. Um, they can't do that without having the, 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 all that experience behind them. And I thought, well, if we can't progress as an industry, an industry that's had tens of billions of dollars invested into it, and we're still talking about animals going extinct, then maybe we need to relook at how we're doing things. Um, I read a, a, an article, I believe it was the, the New York Times, about the U.S. Army Rangers, and they were putting uh, a platoon through that had a, a certain percentage of women on there. Now, I have a close affiliation with the U.S. Army Rangers because we got into a spot of bother in northern Baghdad and, and uh, those guys came and got us out of there. Mm. So I thought, well, if these guys saved my ass in northern Baghdad and uh, and they're actually transitioning and including women on, in, in front-line front roles now as rangers in the Army, then maybe we need rangers, uh, wildlife rangers that are right. females in Africa. And I mean, there's certainly women that are employed out there in, in various roles, but... Uh, other, well, we looked at other projects that were including women and it seemed almost like a token gesture, like women were being put in certain positions but not given, given the opportunity uh, to complete all the roles. Uh, so we thought, stuff it, you know, let's, let's do a selection and see where it goes. And uh, we tried and tried and tried in, in many different areas and we got, um, we got blocked from this concept of having an all-female anti-poaching mm-hmm. unit, an armed one, in which there was no armed all-female anti-poaching unit anywhere on the continent. Um, there are other female anti-poaching units, but they're unarmed. Uh, that the black, the black mamba. Uh, the black mambas is, yeah, is is one example um, where they uh, are working outside in the, in in the communities and doing a fantastic job and building those relationships. But the inside of the reserve is 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 um, the role is done by an armed male unit. That's uh, it's a private security company. So also doing a, you know fantastic job, but it undermines the men because they're not given the recognition that the women are getting and it undermines the women because they're not given the opportunity that the men are, are given to do every role. So we you know, we wanted to create something where there was complete opportunity for everyone that, that passed the selection. And when you say you were blocked, I mean, what exactly was going on? Oh, there's politically correct uh, responses to why you know, it wasn't the right time to look at this or no, uh-huh. thank you, and no, we don't want to take the risk. Um, but uh, you know, we we were determined to give it a try. Uh, we eventually found an area in the Lower Zambezi ecosystem in in Zimbabwe, and one of the largest elephant populations left on Earth. Um, an area that has been home to a lot of trophy hunting operations uh, throughout the years. And 20% of Zimbabwe's land mass is actually set aside for trophy hunting or, tro- or safari areas. 
collectively uh, across Africa, an area the size of Texas is, is set aside for trophy hunting. Now, if I was to say to you, Rich, mate, we're going we're gonna to scrap 700,000 square kilometres or an area the size of Texas, we're going to wipe out all of those national parks across Africa, people would be in absolute uproar. Mm -hmm. Now, this is happening with all the areas that have been set aside for trophy hunting, but they're not national parks. They're communal areas, communal hunting areas. They are areas that have equal biodiversity importance as national parks, but let's just say uh, not not ideal for tourism. Is uh, it? Are they privately owned or is it government land? Usually, government or owned by the communities. And, and so, when these area when these areas do well, the communities do well, and when they don't. The communities see no need to conserve yeah. them anymore and they, they move in, the trees get cut down, the animals get poached, it often gets converted into grazing area for cattle. And so we we saw trophy hunting not as, a, as an argument to be had, but rather as an equation to be solved. And we, we went on to this area to try and create a, an, an alternative economic model uh, to trophy hunting at the same time as trying to stand up this uh, all-female anti-poaching <coughs> unit. Yeah, so it serves... It serves multiple agendas because one of the things with um, the International Anti-Poaching Foundation and what you were doing initially and uh, traditionally is effective, but also sort of a Band-Aid on this massive problem. Because until you get, until you create the right incentives, the right economics incentives, and and you're you're sort of woven into the fabric of the community where they're supporting what you're doing, yeah, um, you're going to be challenged right so by creating this uh this all-female you know cadre of women uh, of of rangers um you're basically connecting with the communities in a more uh in-depth way i think uh and creating incentives that these people can support themselves and find a way you know a better way i think uh i mean to summarize it i think women have become the bridge that conservation had to build into the communities and break down those barriers. Uh, and I mean, h historically, when we were forming an anti-poaching unit or working with one, the men that we would employ would be employed from places far away. We'd bring them in, and that's so they mm -hmm. they, they weren't living next to, or the working next door to their cousins or their brothers, and you know they can give information of where certain herds of animals are going to be. Because I've worked with some of the best units in Africa, and corruption always creeps in. Uh, you know, I often say going to Africa and getting upset with with corruption is like going to the beach and getting pissed off with the sand. It's there. It's it's how we how right. we manage it that that determines the difference between success and failure of a program. And if you can walk in and take corruption out of the equation, you're already halfway home. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, so with with the women, we we haven't seen corruption yet. Uh, we're we're 15 months into it. We we haven't seen an an incident of corruption. And that allows us to employ 100% from the local community right next door to where we're, where we're uh, working. And that turns the biggest line item we have in conservation, which is law enforcement, into a direct community investment. Mm -hmm. and, and putting money that would otherwise be dispersed around the country uh, directly into the local community at household level, right. into the hands of women. And just politically, I mean, that makes it a lot easier for you to get done what you're trying to get done. And then these women are empowered and they can buy land and you know, raise their kids. It's amazing watching, uh, you know, the transformation. And e each one of these women has a has a tough story, a tough background. Um, they're all uh, survivors of abuse, um, you know, domestic violence, sexual sexual uh, violence, um, AIDS, orphans, single mothers, abandoned wives. So they've, you know, when we put them through training, we, you know, we thought we were being tough on them, but they'd already been through hell and back. So uh -huh. 
um, yeah, just seeing the way that they transform themselves and absolutely no handouts that have been given on this program. Uh, we made it bloody tough. If anything, we made it tougher than we normally would because we were at reputational risk in our own minds uh, of employing women now and putting them out there. So we thought we're going to, you know, we're really going to test them. And once we saw the potential, the capabilities, the toughness, the resilience, um, it became our job to train them. Yeah. When you got the first group of women and began the training, <laughs> did you think, like, you know, this could go sideways? Like, or did you think like this is going to work right from the outset? No, from halfway through day one, we knew we had something yeah. very special, something How very you different. Uh, you can just see, you know, you learn the most about someone when, when they don't think they're being watched. And uh, some of the stuff we're putting these women through and seeing how they work together and uh, just cracked on with, uh, you know, minimal fuss and getting the job done. And, and uh, you know, it was a pretty arduous and dangerous environment at the time. Uh-huh. So how many women are part of it now? Uh, so we've got 47 uh, staff that are employed. Uh, around 40 of those are women. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got seven guys that are working uh, on building roads and doing construction uh, out in the bush. And we've got James. So James was the skinner for the hunting operation that used to be there. And uh, so when, when someone would come in and shoot an animal... Uh, which doesn't happen anymore. We've bought we've bought the company, um, uh, well the, the the area out, um, working with the, the the other stakeholders there. So we've bought out the options to to hunt there ever again, uh, and putting different uh, models in. But James, uh, who was left over there, he's now been trained as a as a vegan chef. So he used to skin animals. He's now skinning potatoes and carrots. Yeah. And all these women are eating vegan, right? Yeah, the whole program's vegan, uh-huh. uh, and we we took that stance. By making the program vegan, not necessarily making the women vegan, but giving them the opportunity and, and the understanding of why we think conservation should be leading the pack in terms of driving a, a, a vegan message uh, around the world. You know, people that sign up for conservation because they love the environment or animals are a combination of the two and what better way to protect animals than not to stick, uh, to stick them in your mouth. Yeah. I saw the uh, 60 Minutes piece that just came out recently, right, uh, in Australia yeah. uh, on the yeah. Akashinga, and it's emotional, I mean, to see these women coming from the circumstances that they were in to this incredible place of empowerment, and then to be recognized, and when they go back to their communities or they go to schools, like, everybody knows who they are, like, it's, it's, a, it's a big thing. Yeah, there's there's this unintended social engineering that's going on there in these communities uh, where women were once, you know, I won't say outcast, but you know, treated treated very poorly, and uh, you know, they weren't necessarily victims of circumstance; they're largely victims of men. And uh, to see now the the way that they carry themselves and the respect they have in the local community. Uh, the way they've been able to break down the barrier between conservation and community and, and build relationships and conversations instead of conflict. Uh, it's a testament to, uh, I think, what is a natural quality right. that these women possess. What did the male villagers think of it? So uh, when these women were coming for selection, they were told to to go back home to essentially piss off back back to the home and, and carry out their, their job there as you know domestic workers. And, uh, you know, they still, they stuck their head down and they turned up and they went through the training and, mm-hmm. and the ones that made it through are now just fantastic ambassadors in, in the local communities. You know, Abigail, uh, yeah, you know, young lady, she's, um, 
she's 19, finished school about a year and a half ago. She goes back to her local school now. She's mobbed like a rock star she's by rock every star. every yeah. young girl in that in that school, and it's, you know she creates hope for them. And that's that's special to see in a, in, a, in a community where you know women get pushed constantly right to the back of the line. Right. And what is the effectiveness of the unit in terms of combating poaching? So well, when we first got in there, uh, we would see animals as uh, wildlife as little as once a week. We're now seeing animals coming in uh, on on every patrol that we we're going out. Um, the women have made seventy six arrests, which is sort of unprecedented unprecedented success uh, throughout that area the distance between where they operate from and where they're making those arrests is getting further and further apart so the information they're getting is driving them into the syndicates uh, and and mid-levels of the syndicates and breaking those open information they they got last year uh, implicated former first lady grace mugabe in ivory trafficking uh, that led the zimbabwean government to set up a task force so here you've got the most oppressed demographic under the Mugabe regime for 37 years, being women in rural communities now responsible for triggering uh, an investigation into one of the most powerful women on the continent. Wow. So Mugabe's out now. Has that changed anything politically? Well, uh, President uh, Manangagwa has taken over, and uh, you know we, we are hoping that... Um, you know, more investment and more visitors to Zimbabwe we'll see you know it's actually a very safe and beautiful country mm. and uh, uh, Manangagwa's daughter uh, Tariro is one of the rangers that works with this program oh, wow. yeah and it's better uh, than wasn't didn't uh, Mugabe's wife get busted for poaching yeah 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 so that's um, you know and I mean Mugabe's kids would be on Instagram tipping champagne over their Rolex watches and mm. and just carrying on like brats in general and, and here you've got uh the daughter of the current president is a you know she spends time out there on the front lines patrolling to protect the natural heritage oh, that's a huge change yeah do these syndicates operate with relative impunity i mean what is the you know how effective is the government is the government complicit at all like what is the, what is the level of corruption that allow these um crime organizations to flourish yeah look i, I don't think corruption is isolated to Zimbabwe and I suppose any any different government department is going to have your good people in there and, and, your, yeah. and your bad people and uh, I don't think Zimbabwe is any different to, to the other countries over there uh, you know it, it it's always tough for governments to look favorably upon conservation particularly in the current climate because conservation is becoming increasingly militarized and uh, it's becoming increasingly militarised because people are becoming increasingly desperate. And so we put up bigger fences and more mm-hmm. guns and, and we, we are at war with the local population on a continent that's going to have 2 billion people on it by 2040. Now, when a government is seen to favour those actions, they're viewed by the people, their voters, as favouring the lives of animals over people. And that is right. that, uh, that pushes the priority of conservation further down the, down the list. Now, with these women forming that bridge into these communities where we, we're not having a war with the local population, we're having a relationship with them. It actually brings conservation into a much more favorable light for the government. Mm-hmm. And as somebody with, with boots on the ground over there, <clears throat> what is the real relationship between conservation and trophy hunting? Because there's this argument among hunters that you know by participating in this structure that exists over there, that that is actually contributing to the promotion of conservation because of how they use the funds. Look, I I 
I don't I mean I used to hunt you know it's a, a chapter in my life that I will be you know, having to take to the grave that's that's me um, what I dislike more than hunting is the fact that we as a global community have accepted it as the only economic model to look after so many areas and relied on it on it and and you know this unethical model where people pay to come and shoot something uh, so they can hang it on their wall has been the only way we've been able to come up with those funds and uh, for us as an oil I was saying before we wanted to look at it as, a, as an equation to be solved and you know where hunting has put money into certain areas to fund the protection of those areas that that funding is drying up and we do need alter- alternative models yeah I would imagine you know, social media has played a part in making it less and less uh, popular for people to embark on those trophy hunts, you know, with Cecil and the like, you know, it's, it's got to be a dying thing, is it? It it definitely is. I mean, hunting is is an endangered species itself, and one which I think is going to be increasingly reserved for the, the uber rich. Uh, You've got reduced wildlife populations, from poaching and in some cases hunting, uh, trophy hunting. And there is a distinction between the two. Poaching is is illegal Mm -hmm. and sanctioned trophy hunting is legal. Uh, And then the third, you know, we've got tougher policies and laws surrounding the export of trophies such as uh, ivory from countries like Zimbabwe to places like America. Uh, So it makes it harder for the trophy hunter to bring their trophy back. And those sanctions are normally imposed by entities such as the US Fish and Wildlife Service when they they assess a country's conservation efforts and they mm-hmm. try to make different uh, adjustments to, to help conservation on the ground. And the third reason is exactly what you said, social media, a generation of people that have grown up uh, being able to see exactly what hunting is at the click of, click of a finger and, and make the decision that they don't want to get on a plane and fly across the world so they can shoot something in the yeah. face anymore. What is the biggest obstacle to winning this war on poaching? Look, I think uh, we definitely need a shift in the balance of how we look at uh, protection of the natural world. And our, our, our future as a species is, is directly intertwined with our willingness to preserve biodiversity. And if we don't wake up and actually get behind this environmental move, whether it's doing something about climate change, uh, a small change, a big change, whatever whatever it is in your own home with your own children. Uh, if we don't do something, then we are the endangered species. This rock has been spinning through through space for 5.3 billion years, uh, doing its thing, and it survived much worse than mankind. And unless we can seriously get together and uh, and get behind this environmental movement and shift things like this, I mean, this crappy proportion of funding that we have in the in the, in the not-for-profit world from five percent mm-hmm. i mean five percent seriously guys five percent to look after the natural world the 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 world that we all have to live in and, and inhabit and all these other animals have to live here too if we can't seriously get that right then we're fucked do you think you're pessimistic or optimistic about i'm definitely o- optimistic mate you know and i've had my had my pessimistic couple of years and you know the good thing about crisis is uh it's like me in south america yeah. man you can either fucking you can either get shut back out the other uh-huh. side man and and get up and dust yourself off and and you know learn from the lessons evolve 
uh, or you can sit there and be fucking grumpy about it. Right. But uh, you know what, man? There's a there's a there's a bunch of people that are doing some really cool things and some inspiring things. You know, and to look if you were to go back ten years and look forward to today and look at all the talk that's going on around protecting the environment and and policy changes. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of shit things going on out there, but you know what? We're aware, we're aware of them, and when we're aware, we can start to make changes. And I don't think, that, you know, there hasn't been a, a point in history where people have been so excited about trying to do good things for the environment. We just need more and more momentum. Yeah. It's interesting how we as a culture are more empathetic or we can wrap our heads around getting, um, here you want some more water, uh, compassionate about these incredible animals like rhinos and, and, and elephants and the like. Um, but right under our noses is this you know, massive uh, industrial complex known as factory farming. And we just yeah. can't find it in ourselves to extend that same sense of, of empathy or concern to you know, cattle and chickens and fish and these other animals that you know we consume voraciously yeah there's i mean that's that's speciesism which is the same as uh sexism or racism allocation of different values and rights to different species and animals depending on how convenient they, they are to us and this is uh you know i was a a victim of my own bullshit uh when i walked around the bush for four years um refusing to acknowledge that uh, a cow has the same capacity to suffer as a rhino and the only difference we create between their two uh, abilities to suffer is the difference we create in our own minds and um, you know I was a master of coming up with all these excuses as to why we you know other animals didn't need the same level of appreciation as, as what the ones were that I was protecting you know cows aren't going extinct or you know they've been bred for us to eat um, you know uh, or I do so much good work in conservation that I've earned the right to be able to come home and eat these animals and it's bullshit and eventually yeah, I suppose if you're open enough to acknowledging the truth it gets too much for you and that's a good thing mm -hmm. yeah it is interesting you weren't you weren't vegan from the outset you were kind of well into this work before you know you I mean I switch for yourself I mean I come from a background of hunting not caring for the environment and um, not giving a shit about animals and I'm not proud of that but you know what? It's a it's a good start point to have a conversation with pretty much anyone yeah. in the world because you know some people are born close to perfect. I was you know quite the opposite, and right. it's, it's it's being able to change and being able to identify where the mistakes are and use those as lessons. And you know I can sit down with the hunter from Texas. I can sit down with the with the guy that likes to eat his steak because that used to be me. Yeah, you know. Well, not only that. I mean, you're not you know a dreadlocked hippie you know it's like you walk in and you cut this very masculine frame and you have your background that you have and i think that that um you know with that gives you some gravitas to walk into a room and be taken seriously on issues that perhaps would be dismissed if somebody who looked different than you was trying to communicate them yeah you know what i mean yeah i mean it's back to that like issue about masculinity all different shapes and sizes, uh, you know. Um, and I'll still say the 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 best decision I've ever made in my own, in my life, out of everything I've done, places I've been, the best decision I've ever made is to go vegan and to acknowledge that. And you know what? You don't even have to get out of bed before you're doing something good for the environment and good for animals. And 
it's a really liberating feeling to know that because I mean we, we've I mean I don't think there's anybody out there listening today that doesn't have some sort of connection with animals whether it's a dog or a cat or you go out to a farm or you've been to Africa or whatever it may be you, you can't look in the eyes of an animal and, and deny that that animal doesn't want the same thing as us it wants safety it wants shelter it wants to live without suffering it wants to live without have to line up and, go and walk into a slaughterhouse just like any other person would and I think we're going to look back um, we're going to look back at some stage and be ashamed of what we've done as a species and uh, you know it's fucking good to be on the right side of history Rich what do you think is the biggest <clears throat> stumbling block for for most people and wrapping their heads around going vegan honestly uh acknowledging the truth because you flash up the you know the the, the story or the video of, of where meat actually comes from people are pushing i turn it off i don't want to see it don't want to see it people don't want to know people don't want to acknowledge the truth they know it they just don't want to listen to it and um you know if you really let your own guard down internally let your guard down and, and analyze yourself and and just do you really want to be a person that pays somebody else to do something to animals you're not willing to do yourself? And, uh, you know, I think um, if we just take the time to reflect and have a think about what's on our plate and where did that come from and what did it go through to get there, you know, anyone with any conscience, we wouldn't want that happening to their own child, their own mother, their father, their brother, their sister. So why would you want it happening to something else? And not only something else, something that just doesn't have the ability to defend itself. Yeah. You know, certainly um, this movement is on the rise. More and more people are adopting this lifestyle, but there's still a long way to go for full mainstream adaptation to it, I think. There's a long way to go, but, you know, we're a species that responds well to crisis. And I think, you know, as a, as a we've been digging our own graves uh, with our teeth as a civilization, and I think we're starting to understand that when we look at global warming and we look at the effect that uh, the meat industry is having on our planet and on our health. Uh, we're not fucking stupid. We know what we're doing. We just don't acknowledge it. And I think mm -hmm. as we get further and further into the corner, people are starting to wake up and it's cool it's it's actually exciting mate it is you know i come here to la i go to new york wherever and i type in vegan restaurants and all these red dots pop up and you yeah. walk in and you can't get a bloody seat anywhere you know and it's it's a good thing man good things are happening uh, by good people and it's catching on yeah and and young people are are really on board with this in a in a in a way that my generation isn't you know you, which is exciting and you know what and, and funny you should mention that because so many people say oh you know we've got to get the children involved that's where the future is that's bullshit everybody it's never too late to change okay we can't rely on the children to fix this the next generation it's it's everyone's responsibility it's everyone's responsibility now uh, just because we've done something for 50, 60, 70 years that may not have been right, it doesn't mean it's too late to change. Right. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very liberating thing when you get with the program. How old is your son now? I've got a five-year-old son. Five-year-old. And I've uh, got a, a young daughter as well, well now. daughter too. Yeah. Wow. So what is the world that you would like to see for them? You know, I'd like them to be able to grow up in a, in a world where animals are, are not treated as commodities uh, where animals are given the right to live out their lives as 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 we would like to live out ours uh, and that is you know the flow-on effects when we have that compassion towards animals and protecting the environment is is i think a much happier world uh, for us all to live in yeah um it's 
amazing work that you're doing. Um, I would presume that you're here in the States trying to raise funds and awareness, right? So if people are listening to this and they want to learn more, they want to get involved, they want to contribute or donate, how do they do that? Yeah, thanks Thanks for asking that, Rich, mate. Yeah, um, yeah you know, I mean, I come over here three times a year and do a bunch of lectures around the country, fundraisers. Uh, this trip is a short one, two weeks on the ground. And uh, if anybody wants to know more information, they can go to www.iapf.org uh, or type in anti-poaching into Google. It will come up, the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. But yeah, it's it's no donation is too small or too big. I'll throw that one in. But uh, yeah, we, we really appreciate all the people around the world that make the work that, that we do on the ground possible. And what do you most need the funds for? Like, how would you deploy those funds if you could meet all of your budgetary dreams? So at the moment, uh, we are scaling up the Akashinga program. Uh, so we're about, what, what we do is we, we buy the long-term leases in collaboration with the local community of these hunting areas. And we're looking to purchase the, the place next door now, and that's going to cost us just over 300000 US dollars a year to run. Uh, and that may, that will that will be a 25-year lease on that area. So for 25 years, and we'll re- renew it again after that. That'll be 50 years that hunting will not take place on there. Mm. Uh, yeah. And animals can just do what animals do: uh, go about uh, go about their their lives. We've got a 2025 vision of having 20 areas that have been re- reclaimed from trophy hunting. It'll take a thousand women to manage and protect, uh, and putting 6.2 million dollars a year into the local communities. It seems like it's super scalable, right? To take the the training techniques that you have and deploy them to groups of women in different communities, you know, across Africa and beyond. And also, it seems like a system that would work well for other types of endeavors beyond animal protection. Mate, uh, yeah, funny it's you should mention so that. Well you know, I mean, we, we we go into an area, a conservation area in a small country in southern Africa and able to switch the dynamics in the local community where law enforcement is involved and in a much more positive way, much more cost-effective way. You know, we don't need helicopters and more guns and bigger fences. We, we're having those conversations. But if we can do this in a conservation setting, imagine what we can do outside of conservation, beyond conservation, beyond yeah. Zimbabwe. I think um, it's, it's, it's really exciting to see where this program is going to go. Yeah. And what are the differences country to country, you know, when you go to... The neighboring countries outside of Zimbabwe. Does the, the legal landscape change? Is poaching different there? Fifty-six countries on the continent. Everyone is is different. Some in better ways. Some in worse. Uh, look, every every country we're operating now in in Kenya, uh, Mozambique, South Africa, and Zimbabwe. We just did a, tra- a leadership training program in Uganda uh, last week. So we we constantly having to deal in in different climates, different settings, different languages, cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and political structures so you know we 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 actually have a matrix where we assess what we're going to do and where we're going to do it and why and uh, political will is is a is a very high scoring uh, metric in in that calculator if you want to call it that and uh you know it, it, it's a very powerful thing when you have political will behind you and, and in favor of conservation and it's a huge hurdle when you don't yeah what's the biggest obstacle or hurdle that you're facing like short term right now that you're trying to overcome look i mean funding is always a it's always a tough struggle we're an organization that has some of the best people in the industry at ground level running the programs and and trailblazing uh in conservation and then um you know we've been less successful in in hiring 
the fundraisers uh, or, or getting our head around it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just it's been a struggle on this this side of the pond in terms of getting funding. And you know, we have a really simple, scalable model that is working in a way that is more effective than any other operation I've been involved with before. It's pioneering. It's a viable economic alternative uh, for trophy hunting. We've shifted the strategy of conservation to put female empowerment at the top. It's the most effective single dollar to be spent in community development, and conservation became the byproduct. Uh, we are lifting up communities, uh, putting a majority of conservation funding into community development, and uh, you know, on top of all that, the program is a, is a is a, a a launch pad using some of the most powerful ambassadors we have uh, in in these societies, uh, driving a plant-based vegan message at grassroots rural, uh, rural level you know no big change in history ever started from the top down it always comes from the grassroots always up. always all right well let's close this down um parting words uh for somebody who's listening to this who perhaps is coming into this awareness for the first time had no idea these things are going on in africa is new to the vegan message um is interested in taking that first step, getting involved as an activist or just in terms of their own personal um, consumer choices every single day, what do you? What can you leave for that person? Yeah, look, I mean, we, we, we can't change the world by ourselves. We can do it together, and that starts with, with changing the things in our world and changing them for the better. Uh, we can't protect any, every animal, but we can protect... The ones that are in our lives and i think it just if we just open up to ourselves and acknowledge the truth of of where our food comes from and and the suffering that is happening to animals out there uh if we just acknowledge that as individuals i think the world could be a much better place uh, uh hopefully one day i'll be out of bloody work um you know because because <laughs> animals aren't being threatened animals aren't being treated as commodities they're being treated as people uh, and people that deserve our protection i think that's every everyone's responsibility we have to we have to uh, train men and women up to, to certain levels uh, with various skills and arm them and send them out into the bush, risking their life every day to protect animals. The simple way to protect them is not to stick them in your mouth, you know, and, and we can all do that. That's the power that we all have, and it's a, it's a powerful thing. Powerful indeed. Um, super inspirational. Thank you for everything that you do. Uh, you're doing incredible work. So for everybody that's listening, please um, explore Damien's world and what he's doing. Get involved, contribute, donate. Uh, if you haven't already, please watch his TED Talk. Um, also the 60 Minutes piece on the Akashinga. I'll link those up in the show notes so you can learn more and uh, come back and talk to me again, my friend. Rich, thanks awesome. very much, man. Yeah, and thanks, thanks for what you do and the message that you drive and uh, everyone out there too. Uh, yeah. For those uh, sitting on the fence, you know, just keep keep reading, keep educating yourself, because once the shutters come up, they never go down again. Peace. Plants. Super intense. Unbelievably inspirational. Thank you, Damien, for sharing your story with all of us today. I love you. I love the work that you're doing. To learn more about Damien and his mission and his advocacy, please visit the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. I got tons of links there where you can do a deep dive into Damien's world and work. And please extend yourself to let Damien know what you thought of today's conversation by hitting him up on Instagram at 
Damien underscore Mander, M-A-N-D-E-R, or on Twitter at Damien Mander. Also, visit IAPF.com, that is the International Anti-Poaching Foundation website, and get involved. Uh, If you're looking for some nutritional guidance, check out our meal planner at meals.ritual.com. Thousands of plant-based recipes, all customized based on your personal preferences, unlimited grocery lists, grocery delivery integrated into the service in most metropolitan areas, amazing customer support from a team of highly trained health and diet coaches available seven days a week. And you get all of it for just $1.90 a week when you sign up for a year. So go to meals.ritual.com or click on meal planner on the top menu on my website, ritual.com and get started today. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the podcast, there's a couple simple ways to do it. Take a screen grab of the episode that you're listening to, that you're enjoying and share it on your favorite social media platform. Uh, Make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on YouTube, on Google Podcasts. Leave a review on any of those platforms. Share the show with your friends across the dinner table in person. And uh, you can also support the show on Patreon at ritual.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for production, audio engineering, show notes, interstitial music, tons of help with the website. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for video and editing. Jessica Miranda for graphics. Allie Rogers for photography. DK for advertiser relationships and theme music as always by Analemma. Thank you for the love, you guys. I will see you back here next week with another incredible episode. Who's coming up next? Let me see. I got to look at the calendar. I should know this before I record this. Oh, Marco Borges returns to the podcast. He's got a new book out called Greenprint. I love that, man. This is a great conversation. So that's going up uh, next Monday. You have that to look forward to. Until then, uh, I hope Damien left you with a few things to think about, to ponder when it comes to how we tread on this beautiful planet that we all share. Uh, Until then, peace, plants, be well. Namaste. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.